0: Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Gay Talese, best-selling author of 11 books, perhaps the best known of which are Honor Thy Father and Thy Neighbor's Wife. The late David Halberstam has called him the most important nonfiction writer of this generation. Gay, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. You've written extensively about what skills and talents you developed growing up that made you a successful writer, but there are only hints about what you read, particularly in journalism. How did you come to know journalism? Because that's where your first writing was published. I came to know
1: journalism through the presence in my father's tailor shop of a customer whose name was Lauren Angevine and he's from Seattle, Washington. Mr. Angevine was probably in his mid-60s when I first saw him, and he was the editor of this weekly newspaper in our town called the Ocean City Sentinel Ledger. As a student in Ocean City High School and in grammar school before, I was not very, very good when it came to getting grades, possibly because... I'm not making excuses, but I'm just speculating. Possibly because... What I was good at, which was being curious, if that's good, I think it is, there were no grades. What I was not good at was putting the right answer to the questions when it had to do with arithmetic or geography or chemistry or any, any subject, including English. I wasn't so good at, even in that. When it came to constructing sentences, I, didn't, I, had a sense, I had a sense of construction that was very much at variance from what the teacher who was the English teacher had in mind. But Mr. Angevine being a customer of my father, as I may have said, he, my father was a tailor and he had a very small number of men in the community who who supported him by buying suits from him. It took him a long, it took my father a long time and he didn't make a lot of money because he wasn't a mass-producing figure. He took a lot of time and everything was hand-stitched and, and of course, it was a bit expensive for the for the majority of people in the town to buy a tailor-made suit. But one of them was Mr. Angevine who did – And when I wasn't doing well, and my father was, I guess, why measuring Mr. Angevine for another suit, he must have said he'd hoped that I could go to college. If I had gotten into a college, there was some doubt at the time, I'd be the first member of my family to have gone to a college. But I could not get into, it turned out, after I had graduated from high school, the summer that followed, which was in the summer of 1949, I couldn't get into any college within the driving distance, meaning I couldn't get into any college in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or New York. As I told you, I was born in the southern tip of New Jersey, near Atlantic City. Mr. Angevine heard my father lament the fact that I was probably going to have a, maybe I wouldn't get into a college because, because of my grades. And Angevine said, well, uh, I, I think I can help him. And he did. Where Mr. Angevine helped me a lot, though, is he gave me an opportunity to write for the, for the town weekly. I wrote about high school students, not all of them athletes, some of them were, because most of the space in that weekly and in newspapers across the country, there's always space for the sports activities of the community and of the city and of the nation. My college, um, University of Alabama, um, which I went to in 1949, I finished in 53, it didn't have a school of journalism. It had a department. And the people who taught in that department were reporters, most of them, from the Kansas City Star. The reason I took journalism is because I didn't know what else I could do because the only thing I had done of any consequence was working for Mr. Angevine as a weekly school board reporter. So I went to Alabama in um, September of 1949, and I just took journalism. And I wasn't particularly good at that either because – the reporters who were now on the faculty, graduates, I mean, they were been as a Kansas City star, very formulaic form of reporting, the five w's, who what when, where why, and and the lead had to be essentially what was the main topic of the story, and the second paragraph might have been a quotation and third paragraph, more for more explanation of the subject matter. And all the stories seemed to be pretty much of the same cookie jar. And I wanted to write for a newspaper because the only thing I knew—I didn't read literary magazines. I didn't read. I did read some fiction, but the fiction I read would be would be called trashy fiction. My favorite writer in high school was a novelist named Frank Yerby, that in the 1940s he wrote stories about women who the Lindsay Lohans of that 1940s period, and he wrote about. Actually, women of an earlier period, many of them. He was a black man, incidentally, born in, I think, Georgia. But he, his fiction referred to places in, in, in New Orleans in the time of Napoleon. And he was a, And the women were pretty risque and the situations were, were, were wrought with a lack of morality and appealed very much to me because the writing was robust and a little bit sensuous. And while Yerby wasn't called a pornographer, he wasn't banned. But he certainly wasn 't in the discreet category of any writer who was in the literary quarterlies in that period, but I liked it i really I read fiction but of that kind i didn 't graduate to anything higher than that until I was about nineteen or twenty when I went to years past, when I went to Alabama and someone told me about Faulkner. I never heard of William Faulkner until that time. so it was journalism that was my mission or my calling because i didn 't have anything else that I could think of. I couldn't be a tailor. My father was. But I knew there was no no money in that because I could see how hard he worked and how little he earned. So after I graduated from the University of Alabama
0: without honors— I know you got there because of a friend of your father who helped get you in. What did you bring away from the Alabama experience at a time when the South was beginning to change that affected your later career? Well, how happened, was how, how is it different? Well, here's the
1: first thing. Going to Alabama, which I, I simply did not exactly know where it was when I was told I was going to get it. I didn't even know an application had been made on my behalf. It was through my father, as I told you. And when I went to Alabama, I had to first of all get a map. Where is it? And then I was put on a train by my mother and father in Philadelphia to go down there. And it took about eighteen hours, he had to go through states I never heard of. I mean, I was a provincial kid from the South Shore of New Jersey, very insular, very shy, and the only thing that was an outlet for me, as I said, was this weekly column on high school news. And when I was put on that train and sent to Alabama, I could have well been sent to the to Siberia or to to some place in, in in South Africa. I mean, I didn't know where anything was. And the train took for a long time, going through states like Virginia and then finally to Tennessee and bits of Georgia. And then finally it stops in a place called Tuscaloosa, which I couldn't even spell. That's the site of the University of Alabama. And then I got off the train and there's a jitney and I got a ride to the freshman dormitory. It was 1949. And what did I take from it? Well, two things. One, while I was a freshman... I met a lot of G.I.s. This was a period when the G.I. Bill was still a form of education that elder men, and women who served in the military, they were still going to colleges in great numbers. So I was in my freshman dormitory while I was 17 and most the students were as freshmen. There were people who were 21, 22, 23 in that same dormitory. And they would be playing these older people playing cards to them. The dormitory is like a barracks. It was like a continuation of military barracks. So I was getting a sense of veterans from World War II who were now getting an education and they brought a kind of uh, not a sophistication so much but as a kind of a of a grown up not crude but but boldness to 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 the student body because these are men who had been f- in France or maybe North Africa or maybe the in the Asian theater and yes they were freshmen but they had been around and they were not likely to subscribe to the strictures of the freshman class as readily as were people like myself. The second thing I got, and this is maybe more important, because um, I having never been to the South and having never had anything uh, in my experience in New Jersey that approximated the rigidity of segregation, Alabama in 1949 had, of course, no black students. They were simply not part of of the atmosphere, nor was there any great protest about this in Alabama or Georgia, Mississippi. The civil rights movement would be really occurring some years later. There was not any, any social conscience, um, even in my home state of New Jersey. I mean, I don't want to—it is simply not correct to assume that only in the Deep South, in places such as Alabama and Georgia, Mississippi and other states in the Deep South— that segregation was tolerated. It was tolerated all over. It was tolerated in New York. It is tolerated in New Jersey. In my hometown, granted, it's a small community. Ocean City is founded by Methodist ministers in the in the 1870s. The reason they chose the shore of New Jersey as a beach community, they thought, to be a place for people, Methodist mainly, uh, moral people, uh, to have a resort that would not be so. Rife with sin, so I learned a little bit about how other people lived, and how other people did not live, meaning the black um, that were in the shadows of the, of the community. If they were seen at all, they were seen in very subservient roles. When I graduated from the University of Alabama, because I'd had again experience working for the college newspaper, as well as I was a correspondent for the for for. A daily newspaper in Birmingham, which is some 35 miles away from Tuscaloosa, the Birmingham post herald It was a Scripps-Hour daily mm-hmm. newspaper. And I'd write about college news for that paper. When I graduated in June of of 1953, I was 21 years old, I had a, a military career ahead of me because I took ROTC. And that meant that after I graduated, sometime I'd have to be for two years in the Army. I'd be a lieutenant, which was better than being a private, I thought. Well, I wasn't so sure because when I got my orders, it was in the tank corps and and I had to deal with tanks. I hated the tank because I was a lieutenant in charge of five tanks and you had to be able to take off the track of a tank. And in the incidence of it being hit in times of battle, you had to be able to fix it. I couldn't even fix when I had bicycles. I couldn't even fix a flat tire. So I was ill-suited to be a tank officer, but I was assigned one. For a while, I was one. But what I really was, before I went into the Army— which was about nine months after I got out of Alabama. During that eight-month period, about the weeks after I graduated, I went to New York, and I walked in the New York Times building, and I applied for a job. Now, obviously, I was ill-qualified, but I didn't know that. All I knew is that I had a connection at the New York Times, or so I thought I did. One of the students that I knew from my Alabama campus days was a student named Jim Pinkston who came from Somewhere in Mississippi, and we we became friends. And he told me in one idle moment, "Oh, if you ever go, gay, if you ever go to New York, you ought to look up my cousin, because he's important. He's a he's the managing editor of the New York Times. He may give you a job." I, wow, what's his name? Turner Caledge. How do you spell it? C A T L E D G E. Turner T or N? Turner Caledge. You remember that? I will. I said when I graduated in. Uh, June of 1953. First thing I did after spending a week with my mother and father, got on a bus and went to New York and walked right into the New York Times building. And the receptionist asked what I was doing there, and he looked at me. I, I must describe myself as being then as now very well dressed. My father's a tailor, as I said before, and I always had, even as a young boy, to um, conform to his standards in attire, to dress up, to look, make a good appear- appearance. So when I walked into the New York Times reception room on the third floor of the building, which is where the newsroom was, the receptionist looked me over and I was very well dressed. I was 21. I had my hair combed and I had shiny shoes and I had a nice suit that my father had made. And I walked in. The receptionist asked what I was doing. It was around – it was before noon. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. I got an 8 o'clock bus and it took about two and a half hours to go from Ocean City up to New York. I, asked what I said, I'm here to see Mr. Kalich. And then this receptionist it was a man, elderly man with a bow tie. And he said, well, Mr. Kalich, you have an appointment? I said, no. You don't have an appointment to see Mr. Kalich. No, I don't. I, but I know his cousin. I just graduated from Alabama. And I said, what's your name? And he took it. And he said, well, I'm, Mr. Kalich is very busy. And I said, I'm sorry. But, said, How long are you in town? I said, I don't know, as long as I can see Mr. Kalich. The receptionist picked up the phone and made a phone call to somebody and about 10 minutes later, a young man, um, also very carefully attired as I was, said, I'm the secretary. I'm the executive secretary of Mr. Kalich and what is it you want to do? And I said, I'd just like to meet Mr. Kalich. I said, why? I said, well, his cousin told me when I was a student. and he th- I just come and do it. And they were just bewildered but I looked pretty – I mean, I wasn't some bum off the street, and I wasn't threatening in any way. If anything, I made a very positive impression, I thought. I always thought that. Ten minutes later, the same secretary, Mr. Herb Andre, his name was. Okay, so well, Mr. Collins can't see you now, but if you come back around 10 or 4, he has a 4 o'clock meeting every day, a news meeting. Maybe I can slip you in. You can just say a quick, give him a you know, quick hello, but it won't be more than a few minutes. You understand? I said, yes, I do. So I went back. Uh, I took a walk around Times Square. I had never been in New York before. And then I went back at the appointed time, 10F, 10 of 4. And within a few minutes, Mr. Andre came out. And he took me through this vast newsroom, which is very impressive. People, great numbers of people, rows upon rows upon rows of reporters on the telephone, smoking cigarettes, typing stories, copy readers, asking questions. a very active situation and vast in size. And I went to see the and the, finally I'm I'm walking into the big office of the managing editor and meeting for the first time Mr. Turner Kalidge, who was born in Mississippi. And when Mr. Kalidge greeted me and he sat me down next to him for a few minutes, Mr. Andre, the Secretary, was just behind me. He said, Mr. Kalidge said, Well, what brings you to New York? I said, Well, I just hoped someday I could work for the New York Times. Oh, that's quite unlikely because you have to have like, a lot more experience. You said just just graduated from college? is yes. He says, where did you go to school? The University of Alabama. I said, that's where I met your cousin. You met my cousin? What's the name of my cousin, if I might ask? I said, his name is James Pinkston. And Mr. Cabbage looked at me, and he, I could see no glimmer of recognition of the name Jim Pinkston. He didn't say, I don't have a cousin by that name, but there was no recognition. He said, well, um, uh, the, as I said, there's no um, opportunities for a young man of your age and experience to be here, but maybe— Maybe if you get experience in a big paper somewhere else, you come back some years from now. I said, what about a job as an office boy? Anything. And Mr. Catledge looked at his secretary. And Mr. Andre shook his head. said, so there are no jobs. There are no, not openings yet. But Catledge said, well, why don't you take this young man's name and, and maybe there'll, something will open up. And so this was done. I wrote my name and phone number for Mr. Herb Andre. Mr. College thanked me. It was all of about three minutes, and I walked out. And I went back downstairs, and they took the bus back to Ocean City, thinking I'll never see that building again. But no less than two weeks, a phone call in my mother's dress shop. Mr. Herb Andre, this gay talis there, and I was, and I picked up the phone, and Mr. Andre said, you know, we have an office boy job, a copy boy job. Would that be all right with you? I said, yes, it will. I said, when can you come? I said I can come back today. No, no, you don't have to come back today. You come back in a few weeks. And so how about they set a date? So, I went back by bus, had some things that I carried with me. rented an apartment for $11 a week, a one room rented uh, a furnished apartment. And um started for the next 8 months to be a copy boy. And I wrote some pieces. It was they were a few pieces are published. Pieces you know in your off time even if you're a copy boy, the advantage of it or for any young person that's going into journalism, even if it's a lowly position, you get to meet the people, the professionals. And more often than not, they are courteous and helpful to young people. And yeah, as as young as I was, 21, and, and, and awkward and inexperienced as I was, I found some very kindly people, rather like Lauren Angevine, had been in Ocean City, New Jersey to me, and and when I wrote a, a story about something I'd seen in Times Square, I, I borrowed a typewriter from one of the reporters, and I showed it to him. He was a distinguished Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. His name was Meyer Berger, and he was a friendly man to everybody, a loved, a beloved figure. So I gave it to him, Mr. Berger. He said, well, this is not bad, and he changed some words, and he caught me with a spelling mistake here or there. And he showed it to the city editor, and the city editor came back and said, you write this? And I said, yes, sir. Well, it's not bad. Let me think about it. So they checked out what I had written to make sure it was accurate and got in the paper. No byline, but got in the paper. So I was marked as a, as a comer, even as a copy boy. I went in the Army for a couple of years. Two years later, I came back, got a job as a, in the sports writer. So
0: that was thing, at the beginning of my career. That's one of the things I wanted to ask about is, is there's something – about sports writing and probably should mention that um, your newest book uh, published in fall 2010 collects some of your best sports writing. But there's something that attracts people, journalists, to writing about sports. Um, What is it that's attractive about sports? What's
1: attractive is this, that unlike other forms of journalism, in sports journalism, you can see exactly what you're writing about. You're a witness to the game it's a front row seat or you're at the side of the ring or you're on the edge of a tennis court or you're over in the press box overlooking a football gridiron. Well, you see the game as it's happening. Eyewitness reporting in war is impossible or almost impossible. Certainly in politics, you don't really see the backroom making. In any form of journalism, you're getting information from secondary sources, sometimes not reliable sources. And sports... You are there. You are this main source of of what you see, and your observations matter. And moreover, after the completion of the game, you have access to the locker room and you can go in and talk to the people who might have been the prize fighter who lost the fight, or the pitcher who pitched a no hitter, or the guy that struck out with the bases loaded. You talk to these people in their ups and downs, and Jesus, did you how do you feel about fumbling on the two yard line and the game was over after that, and your team lost? What was it? who hit you? how did you did you feel it, the ball being kicked out of your hands? Have you and these people, embarrasses as, as though they they might must be terribly humiliated by the event or, or embarrassed at being the reason of their team lost, they talk to you and explain sometimes with in a pained expression what happened to them so a reporter knows what happened. Saw pretty much what happened and then gets clarification from the very individual that was the center of the story, good or bad. That immediacy, you you can see the expression on faces, not just what people say, but how they say it and how they recall, sometimes at variance with what others saw. So you get sometimes different viewpoints on the very same incident what caused the fumble how play was how outfielder lost the ball in the sun and why and why did he drop it all this stuff it's great it's great and also don't forget that newspapers give you give you room i mean there's there's room in the sports page there's a sense of immediacy and the story can't be held over like if you're covering something in the world of education the world of politics or labor relations if it doesn't fit today, they'll run it tomorrow and maybe they'll not run it at all. Sports, you have to – I mean that you can't be two days late on a, on, a, on a, some event like a football game or a basketball game or a tennis match. You have to be there. So you, you get in the paper. And also what you see in human – relationships between athletes or the athletes and coaches or coaches and fans or the alumni association you get a larger sense of the community especially from the alumni association always breathing down the neck of the coach and if the coach loses his job jesus he gets fired and his wife has to move and it's it's awful it's awful you see a lot about life that's beyond the arena itself So it's a great training ground. As you said, James Reston, who later on was the political correspondent and finally the bureau chief of the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner, David Halberstam, another Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, No wonder they got their sense of of humanity, their sense of of right and wrong and winning and losing and a lot of the other uh, experiences that befall all of us. They got it from being young sports writers. It's a great place to begin.
0: Let's let's pause here now um, to listen to some music that, that you have uh, chosen. This is from um, La Traviata. Why did you choose this music? It's because right now <clears throat> you mentioned sports writing. Well, I after I left
1: that, I started doing many things. I, I wrote, uh, when I, especially when I was doing magazine pieces, sometimes for the New York Times Magazine, sometimes for Esquire, other places. I like to write about not only the experiences I mentioned about sports – but people in any kind of occupation or endeavor or form of art. And recently, quite recently, in fact, within the past month, beginning in early August of this year, 2010, I was in Moscow in the early part of August during that heat wave and when there were forest fires. And then I went, because I want to see an opera singer. She's Russian, soprano, and she... Uh, was born and reared in Moscow so and said I wanted to begin the interviews with her there. And then I went with her to to uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina. It's not my field. In fact, I don't even have a specialty. I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on anything. But I am a, a writer who likes to write about people who accept challenges, whether they're sports people or, or, or painters or, or educators or politicians or singers. I once wrote about Frank Sinatra. Certainly, this is a different kind of singer, this soprano. But I wanted to write about someone on the way up, and here is a woman, 32 years old. And so this music from Verdi is, is something that I'm, I'm writing about or in, in the near future.
0: That was music from La Traviata, chosen by our guest on Profiles today, best-selling author Gay Talese.
2: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from... Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business Internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: Robert Boynton, in the Columbia Journalism Review, described you as having an insatiable appetite for information. Is that a liability in the day of the Internet?
1: I don't think it's ever a liability to know more than you have to know. Uh, I don't think you can ever over-research. I mean, I know it's difficult sometimes to, uh, when you've collected so much information, then you have to go through it, as as I'm now going through it, with this massive amount of information I've acquired during my travels with the aforementioned opera singer. But I believe that when you have... Access to a massive information that you yourself collected and you become very, very familiar with it by rereading it, rereading it, rereading it. You can c- compare it to perhaps many of your listeners have watched skyscrapers being built or big edifices going up. And prior to the building process, the structure, the steel, the pouring of concrete, the building of walls, there is the foundation – and before the foundation, there is the excavation. And people sometimes see earth-moving equipment equipment occupying great areas of space, a whole block maybe. And they dig deeply and they go into the muck and the dirt and the rock. And you find these, these tractors and all kinds of hoisting equipment digging deeply. And I think of research as digging deeply. And when if you dig deeply... And you have a big area that you've excavated. As you notice with earth-moving equipment, they can move around almost like – they can move around like ballet dancers, you know, making – twirling around these tractors. You see them going back and forth, moving this and that, moving this and that. And I think of moving this and that being like material that you use as a a researching reporter, as a researching nonfiction writer – uh, and the more you have, the freer is your movement. And the long, the more you have, the bigger your excavation, the more possibilities you have when it comes to construction. And so if you want to, on a grand scale, write something, it might be a long magazine article or it could be a book, you have to do, prior to any writing at all, a lot of digging so you can see all the possibilities We are not talking about creative writing. We're talking about nonfiction. We're talking about reality. We're talking about as close as you can get to the full truth is what you're you're looking for here. But if you've got masses of material, you have a lot of options. What you choose to write about, how you choose to write about it, how you present it, where you begin, where you decide is the middle point, where is the conclusion, where are you going, how do you get there? All these questions before you even try to answer them has to be preceded by a lot of material from which you choose. So sometimes the first stage of what I'm talking about, which is collecting information, and doing so with vigor and with endless curiosity, as Mr. Robert Boynton said, obsessive maybe. Maybe it's obsessive. But I think it is also necessary. If you're trying to do fully what's possible in the form of nonfiction writing, sometime called literary nonfiction and various terms
0: are used, but it's essential, I think. Ronald Kovach sees you wearing three hats, that of reporter, the collecting of the information, nonfiction writer, and a fiction writer doing scene setting. Which of those is the most important?
1: Well, they combine to make, I think, a central point of trying to write stories. So is to be a storyteller, which all playwrights and novelists and short story writers are. But a reporter cannot unlike those I mentioned, take liberties, should not take liberties, must not. So, again, getting back to what I said before, the research gives you a lot to choose from. But you really have to remind yourself that while you're telling as, as accurately as any reporter must, you're not exaggerating, you're not taking shortcuts, you're telling as much as possible the truth as much as you've been able to find of the truth. But you also have to have a form, a style, and it has to be storytelling. So it has to have main characters or minor characters. It has to have scenes, situations, dialogue, even interior monologue where you're telling the reader how certain people you're writing about, how they think. Not what they say, but how are they thinking? What are they thinking? What are they thinking? And, 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 and sometimes it might be asked by critics, how does this writer – How do they know what what these people are thinking that they're writing about? You know because you know the people that well. And you know them so well that they tell you what they're thinking. It's not that you only can guess how they think. It's not guessing. It's how they tell you. You built up a kind of trust and familiarity with the people you're writing about because you're spending a lot of time with them. Now, what never is taken into account or rarely is taken into account is how much time it takes to write well. And how much time it takes to research well. I mean, research requires enormous amount of patience. And 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 what I mean by patience, sometimes people, young people, old people, people that want to write, want to be writers of nonfiction, want to write books, want to do this or that in the world of, of, of reality, do not know that one of the early tests that you must pass is your willingness to be around people for great lengths of time with whom you do not necessarily have much comp- compatibility. Meaning, if you're a person who's easily bored, if you're a person that has to be engaged or stimulated by your companionship to to maintain interest, then you're in the wrong business if you're following in the business I'm in. Because one of the things about that I've learned is sometimes the people who represent good stories are not necessarily... Wonderful people to be around. They might be boring. When I did his book on the mafia, it's called Honor Thy Father, he said, Oh, how exciting you're hanging around with these gangsters and boy they're shooting up the streets in the middle of the day. I wait a minute. Is being around gangsters really boring. You know what we really do until I tell these people when I was hanging around with a banano mafia family in the nineteen sixties into the seventies? Uh, the honor! If I was published in 1971, but from 65 to 70, I was hanging around with, with really big time gangsters. But it wasn't as it is in the movies, or as you know, it's not like you have shooting every uh, every every evening. There were periods just hanging around with these people, and they were watching daytime soap operas in the afternoon. They were watching television all the time. If you go into a mafia man's house. There's always television. The sound from the television, because all these mafia guys assumed that the federal government had put, put bugs in their in their lamps, in their wall sockets, and and so they wanted the sound of television. And they didn't care what was on television to uh, to rise above the conversation, so that the so the wiretapping would not carry voices, because the voices would be of some soap opera star or some sound from a. Some a game show, whatever it was on television in the afternoon. So and, and one thing that happened in this mafia, the, the television sets were burning out readily. You know, It's day and night these sets are going. And then they'd buy another television set and take the old television set and put it in the corner. They never let a television set go back to the repair shop because they thought, oh, this probably that's they'll find a way to get sound out of that. So you learn little things, but, but what I'm trying to say is sometimes you you have to be around people for long periods. And you are I'm not saying you're lonely because there's not much to say to one another at times. But you must be very patient, as I guess a great fisherman has to be patient. And it's a form of fishing, isn't it? And so even when I did Frank Sinatra, you think, oh, that's really exciting. Oh, well, there appears you're just waiting a long time for an interview and it doesn't happen. You wait in a hotel room for the phone to ring and it doesn't ring. The agent for Frank Sinatra said he would call you, but he doesn't call you. The appointment that had been promised— And you wait for it to be confirmed. It doesn't get confirmed. You're waiting. You're you're hanging around. You wonder, what am I doing here? Well, you have to say, well, I'm doing here. I'm waiting, and it's going to happen. But I have to be patient. I have to be quietly persistent. A lot of people don't have the patience for that. They want things to happen. They want to snap their fingers and think the rhythm is all their own. And it's going to happen because they think it should happen. Well, it won't happen that way. You have to hang around. And that's the art of hanging around that I use often to describe what I do.
0: The art of hanging around and it involves a lot of patience. You um, choose not to use a tape recorder, and yet dialogue shows up. Yeah. actual dialogue. How do you create? <clears throat> do throat> I, I d- dare say create it? No, uh, I don't. And what I've developed, I think, partly because I've never
1: used a tape recorder, is is listening. I do listen very carefully, and I retain to a degree. What I do is is I remember parts of the dialogue. And i when I have an opportunity, meaning when I'm not exactly with the person, but when i'm still it's still clear and fresh in my mind, what I heard, I will write in in cards that I carry in my pocket, shirtboard, I cut up and shape it, and I use this as a rather discreet way of scribbling some notes when I have the opportunity, which is to say when i'm maybe I go to the excuse myself from an interview, go to the bathroom and I'll write something out of the view of the person. I'm talking to because I don't want the person I'm talking to to see me make notes. I think it interrupts the flow and the harmony of the relationship. And I, and a tape recorder would do it even more so, which is why one of the reasons I avoid, but not the only reason. I'll get to that in a minute. But what I do then at night later on after I have much of the dialogue, but I'm not sure I'll go back to the person. I'll say this is what I heard now. That's what came out of your mouth. You do agree. Yeah. Now, tell me, what were you thinking when you said this? I mean, I heard you say this, and I know you got mad at this man. In the Sinatra piece, which many people have read, there are scenes once with Frank Sinatra in a pool room having an altercation with a young guy who was shooting pool. And there was dialogue between Sinatra and this young man. I saw this happen. I wrote down some of the interaction between the two people. And the next day I went to see the young man. I had his address because I asked him what his phone number, what his address. And I went back. Here's what I heard last night when you're with Sinatra. Here's what I heard. Now, what were you thinking when, you, when Sinatra was yelling at you? And do you think when you're yelling back at him, he's, you can get beat up by one of his bodyguards and all this stuff? This is how you get this interior monologue because you find out from the person what were you thinking. Now, what tape recorders tend to do is they bring the interview indoors because tape recorders are usually – not that portable. You can't be running around with a tape recorder on because you don't you – know, you have to be pretty stationary, I would think. And earlier I said it also is, I think, an intrusive instrument. And what I like to do, since I mentioned earlier the, the storytelling aspects, I like to have scenes. I like situations to be outdoors and described. Frank Sinatra going to a prize fight in Las Vegas. Or Frank Sinatra in a large recording studio in NBC and Warner Brothers, I wanted to um, to give a visual picture as you get when you go to a film or when you see something in in a grand spectacle in the outdoors and so the tape recorder is restrictive it's, it reduces the interview to question answer question answer question answer. Have you ever been tempted to write fiction? I have been tempted and I did write a short story once. and It was published. I should have been very encouraged. I received an encouraging letter from the fiction editor of Mamazelle magazine that published my short story. It was published in 1966 and uh, it was called Getting Even. It was based on something from my boyhood in Ocean City, New Jersey that I, I recreated in a fictional form. But after I after it was published, I thought, well … You know, just writing another short story, there are so many great short story writers, so many great fiction writers. And there were not so many great nonfiction writers, in my opinion, at that time in the 1950s and 60s when I was growing up and reading magazines. I read the Saturday Evening Post and many magazines that are not published anymore. But I didn't think that the nonfiction, which was usually articles about a important people, f- famous people or people that were known for reasons of notoriety as well as fame. But they were just interviews, even this age before the tape recorder, in a time when reporters took notes with paper and pad. What came out was not something that was very creative in the way it was written. It was it was just, you know, it was about a person that you might be curious about because that person was famous or relevant at that time. And i said i want to, I want to write better nonfiction than so I wanted to use that's when I started using the tools of the fiction writer, the storytelling techniques of the fiction writers that I admired, but holding to the to the facts that were demanded of the editors from the New York Times and other places magazines that I later submitted to articles to so I wanted it both ways I want to write as a short storyteller, but i I want to uphold. The high standards of, of nonfiction practiced by very reliable institutions. So this one short story was nice, but it, that's the last time I ever did try it. I didn't. I wasn't interested in, non, in in fiction except as a reader, and I was influenced by it, as I said. But but I wasn't
0: interested in being a practitioner of fiction. From a very early mm-hmm. age, you have been a good typist. You still use the typewriter. I guess you've resisted the computer. I use the typewriter after I've made notes.
1: And I think writing longhand gets it in your head. Also, I told you I remember. When I write what I heard somewhat later after I've heard it, it helps me in, sort of imprint it into my memory. And when I retype it, which I do at night, it's further imprinted into my memory. It becomes more mine, less than what was out of the mouth of another person. When I do research, I don't want to get it from the internet. I don't want to Google things. I mean, I know you can, but I insist on seeing the person, being with the person I'm writing about. I want to have access not only to what I hear from their mouth, but how they conduct themselves and what they look like and how they behave in impromptu situations when there's something that's not so predictable happening. And I know it is difficult to get access to people, particularly when people know that they're going to be written about. So preceding whatever kind of research you do, there has to be an approach to these people. And you have to, as a a writer or as a prospective writer— have to sell yourself to these people. You have to say to them, I am sincerely interested in you. I'm sincerely interested in you because, and you have to tell them why. I'll give you an example. When I approached the Mafia Man, let's get back to a subject I mentioned earlier, uh, honor thy father. When I approached this gangster named Bill Bonanno, who was the son of a gangster named Joe Bonanno, I met Bill Bonanno in 1960, late 64, when I was still on the New York Times and I was covering some FBI raid of mafia leaders, and in this courthouse, in the federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan, Bill Bonanno was indicted along with his father and other people of the gang. And during a, a, a break in the um, in the courtroom, when the lawyers and the mob mobsters were in the corridor talking among themselves, and I was among other reporters on the other side of the corridor, I approached Bill Bonanno unannounced. I just walked up to him. His lawyer was right there, as I said, and I said, "Mr. Bonanno." I'm not going to interview you. I know you won't talk to me. And the lawyer says, yes, we have nothing to say. I say, I know you have nothing to say. But someday, maybe years from now, we'll maybe get to know you. And I'll tell you why. It's important. I said, whether you live a long life or not, when you die, and we're all going to die, whatever is in the newspapers about you, in your obituary, is going to be information that the press obtained from the Justice Department or the FBI. So your whole life is going to be defined by information provided by those law enforcement people that want to put you in jail forever. If, if that's OK with you, that's OK with me. But I said, you have a chance someday if you're willing to trust me and we get to know one another under right circumstances, which is not right now because you're going to be indicted probably for these crimes, organized crime activity. But someday maybe we can talk and talk. Banano looked at me, the younger Banano, said nothing. The lawyer said, I'm sorry, kink. So I thank you very much. What I did then was get the I knew the the name of the attorney and I knew I could find in the telephone book his address. I wrote a letter to the attorney named Albert Krieger who was defending the Banano crime family, Mr. Albert Krieger. And I wrote to him, and said, Thank you for hearing me the other day. And I just want to know that someday maybe we can have a lunch with your client. Well, it took me about three years, but I kept writing letters. And finally, after 1969, it's almost three and a half years since my first encounter, I did go to Banano, and he was then out of jail, and he was willing to hear me out. I wasn't interviewing him, never a tape recorder, I told you. But I said, look, you are now 36 years old. I was about 30 his age, and I had left the Times then. And I said— your story, your, why you ever got into the mafia? I know your father's in it, but why you? And they said, you and me. I said, oh, we're both about the same age. And actually, my father, who's from southern Italy, and Banana's father, who's from Sicily, is essentially the same part of the peninsula of Italy. And I said, our lives are so different. Here I am working for New York Times and writing for magazines, and here you are going to jail. You've been in jail twice, and you have three children, and you're going to go to jail again because you got this credit card indictment. He was... Federal offense to to misuse someone's credit card, and he did, and he got caught. So he was going to go to jail on Terminal Island in Southern California for four years. So here you are, four years. You have about six months before you have to surrender. Maybe we should talk about how did you get into this mess? So he wanted to talk, and I thought we'll give you a side. Not that we're going to make you into an angel because you're not an angel, but will these give perspective to your life, some balance, why you got in it? Here you are married. Here you are with children. What are, the, are these children going to be in the mafia like you are because their grandfather is a big mafia godfather? All these questions. So we started. And out of that came more trust and more trust and more trust and more time and more deeper understanding of this gangster character. And the wife as well. And the children as well. And the home life of the mafia. And I got this into this book, which was called Honor Thy Father. So it is – but you have to sell yourself and you can't rush. It's, and patience is what I mentioned earlier. It is so essential for anybody in, in your audience that is young and wants to be a writer of nonfiction either for a newspaper or a magazine or maybe book length. The essential ingredients has to deal in the beginning with the capacity to be patient and and sensitive to other people and the ability to transfer yourself in a way – To other people, to see it from the other point of view. How long do you think you will write? Who who knows? I mean, you know, I have this assignment as I speak to you now to write about this opera singer. And then I have a book I'm I'm doing for Knopf that I've been working on for about a year and a half on my 50-year marriage. I was married in 1959. I wanted to do nonfiction in the area of marriage now. And um, so I'm working as if I'm going to live forever. And that's the attitude I think you have to have. You can't be, oh, I better not get started on this because I'll never finish it. Well, who knows? Sometimes you do have writers leave manuscripts behind that are not completed. But, you don't. you never know. So I don't even think about it.
0: That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been distinguished writer and journalist Gay Talese. His newest book, a collection of his sports writing, is called The Silent Season of a Hero. Mr. Talese, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. We close with more music from Verdi's Don Carlo. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.